Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I had the great pleasure this week to sit down with Amanda Gorman, a young poet whose electrifying poem at the 2021 inaugural ceremonies lifted our spirits just weeks after the same capital had been overrun by an insurrectionist mob. The poem she read was called The Hill We Climb, and two years, almost to the day from that inauguration, I sat down with Amanda to talk about the hills she's climbed. Here's that conversation. Mr. President, Dr. Biden, Madam Vice President, Mr. Emhoff, Americans, and the world. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? The loss we carry, a sea we must wade. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace, and the norms and notions of what just is isn't always just is. And yet, the dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. We, the successors of a country and a time where a skinny black girl descended from slaves and raised by a single mother can dream of becoming president only to find herself reciting for one. Amanda Gorman, I still get chills when I hear that. And I've been waiting for two years to talk to you about that day and that poem and your life. (laughs) Well, that's a huge honor to me. I was so excited to talk to you. It's such a huge privilege. Thank you. When people think about that day, January 20th, 2021, there are two things I think they remember. One is a capital surrounded by fence and armed guards two weeks after an insurrection and and you and the uplift uh, and the electricity of that poem. And I can only imagine, and I want to talk about what that moment was like for you in front of a billion people uh, uh, doing what you did. But be, And the poem that you read that day was called uh, the hill we climb. So I just want to start off by talking about the hills you've climbed to get there and the hills you're climbing still. But you gave a little hint of your story at the beginning of the poem, descended from enslaved people and a daughter of a single mother. Tell me about your family and that history. Uh, well, thank you so much for uh, that question. I guess rooting the conversation in, I think, my life, because I don't think that 
always happens. I think sometimes when someone can gain visibility at a very unique moment in their lives, sometimes it just takes, I think, a little bit more of a wider perception to say, hey, this didn't begin that day or that inauguration. There is a journey and a life and a person behind that poem. And so when people, I think, have inquiries about that and are interested not just in my words, but in who I am as a person, I'm always so grateful for that. To give you a little details about my family, my family is very kooky. <laughs> As I mentioned in my poem, I was raised by an incredible, strong, intelligent, single mother who also happens to be an English teacher. And I think what that meant for me is growing up, I was raised in a household that valued language and understood the importance of that. Dad was never in the picture. You know... For me, I like to focus what I talk about on my mom because I would rather elevate and celebrate her for being present than to center a conversation around someone who's not there. Well, but the point is he wasn't there. Yeah. And you have siblings, including a twin. I do, yes. And and do you have another any other siblings? It's me, my mom, and my twin sister were kind of what I call the the woman trinity. I think growing up together and having such a female household has made us the the feminists and the woman that we are. Tell me a little bit more about your mom, because well, uh, you know I've read enough to know that she was uh, and is kind of a heroic figure in your mm, life. Yes. Um, absolutely. And I think that can be said for so many other p- people's caregivers in their lives. I think with my mom, I, as I was growing up, watched her not only teach, but get her master's, get her doctorate degree in education. And so I was witnessing someone who was bringing joy and life and support into her family while juggling that with her education and with her own career. And I think what that taught me is that I wouldn't have to sell myself short in life to be a good daughter, a good woman, or even potentially a fantastic mother, that I could be a poet and still have a personal life. She taught in Watts, Mm -hmm. uh, at a middle school in Watts. Talk about your mom's love for language and poetry. And first of all, where did she acquire that passion? And how did she impart that to uh, you and presumably your sister as well? Right. You know, I will ask her about that after this podcast. I have what (laughs) I've been told. and We'll do her next week. We'll do her next week. Exactly. I think that would actually be a really good in-depth conversation for me to have with her. What I will say about my mom, which I find absolutely really funny, is my mom loves language. But, you know, growing up, I'm not sure I would have considered her the biggest fan of poetry. I think a lot of the literature my mom took in when she was young and she would recount these stories to me is she loved romance novels. She loved kind of thick uh, fiction. She also really loves history books. So any biography on Lincoln, any biography on Grant, she would read. And I do think that I absorbed that in a way because I try to ground my poetics in a passion for history and in an understanding of the past. And so I think what she bestowed upon me is this understanding that words have origins and they have past and histories that we need to speak to in order to envision a better future. 
So I'm glad to say by me becoming a poet, I think she's warmed up a little bit more to genre outside of what she would typically read. Uh, yeah. Well, well, partly your poetry may have warmed her up to it because it is grounded in experience and in history and and in in the moment in a way I, I saw a critique of yours of sort of classic poetry about love and trees and nature and so on and you said i think you said it what you you thought that that was sort of rooted in in white supremacy and i was interested in that tell me about that uh well i first, should first say i love classical poetry i love homer i love ovid um, I love the Aeneid. I love all of those kind of they're, they're all dead. You don't have to say that, you know. They're not going <laughs> to They're all dead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't have to say that. I love Shakespeare, which, you know, always wasn't the case. And I think the critique that you're getting to, which I forget where exactly I said that, but I think I was more so pushing back on the hegemonic uh, white male dominance of poetry in which it was mostly understood through this idea of, let's say, leisure in a natural space. Um, that is to say, if you ask um, a sharecropper to write a poem about the land and to write someone who's never, ask someone who's never worked in a field before to write a poem about the land, they can write incredibly different things, incredibly beautiful things. But what those differences can tell us is who historically have been the tillers and the workers of the land in the United States, which was built on a system of slavery. So that is to say, I love classical poetry, but I get frustrated because when I show up to a classroom to help students write, they have this idea that if they don't want to write about a red wheelbarrow, their poetry is disqualified, that they're not allowed to write about race or gender or change or the environment. And so I guess it's less so me trying to criticize something and me trying to open up space for new voices in poetry who want to write beyond the themes of the classics. Okay, so I have to confess, I've never really gotten poetry particularly. Yeah. Certainly there are poems that, that capture me, but one of the things that I appreciate about yours is is that it is rooted in experience and it is it is it is accessible in a way that I think distinguishes it from the more ethereal kinds of, of things that I've read. So you are so fluent uh, on on the page. You're obviously fluent off the page as well. But <laughs> but when Thanks. you were a kid, speaking words was a uh, was one of those hills that you had to climb. Yeah. Tell me about that experience. You know, and to be honest with you, it's a mountain that I'm still climbing. I think I've gone into a specific hilltop that I appreciate. But, uh, you know, ever since I could remember, I struggled with speech, specifically um, any versions of the R sound. <laughs> that could be er, that could be r, that could be ear, that could be r, or all these kind of different variations, whether it's in the beginning, middle, or end. And as you can imagine, that becomes very hard when you're attempting to speak the English language or say words like your last name, which is Gorman, or say things like poetry. Um, and or so recite that, poetry. Or recite poetry, exactly. And so um, this was a challenge which, you know, existed in my life for several, several years, you know, the two decades of my life. And I remember just really deep periods of 
frustration because I love poetry so much and I love it on the page, but I also love the way it feels in your mouth and to adore something so much and to have an impediment which keeps you from accessing that power in a way. I think that was something that really caused me a lot of pain as I was, you know, aspiring to be a poet. Over time, however, when well, I let, learned- let me let me just stop you for one second. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> was it something that also made you self conscious? Uh, oh, you, yeah. Were you were you teased? Were you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, school can be a very cruel place if you are different or other. I will say I was very fortunate that I had the support of my family and my friends, and my educational environment was incredibly encouraging. But every single time I met someone who was new or a stranger who, let's say, hadn't been introduced to my different way of speaking, I would constantly get met with, where are you from? Because you can't be from here because you speak different from me. I'd say Mm -hmm. I'm from L.A. And they'd go, no, where are you really from? And so it's this interesting kind of intersection of the xenophobia that was assumed from my having what people thought was an accent but was actually um, an issue of speech. Um, and so I think that stung more than anything. I was born here. I love English. I'm very fluent in English, but the idea that there's no way I could belong because I dropped my R's. Well, my guess is some of those folks were probably watching that inauguration <laughs> and thinking, man, she really got it. But She really got it. Yeah. <laughs> um, listen, I want to play something. I, I just ran across something the other day because I was tweeting about a book that just came out this week that I really recommend to you saying life it's called Life on Delay by a guy named John Hendrickson who writes for the Atlantic who uh, is a stutterer and he 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 actually interviewed the president about that I want to ask you about that in okay. a second but someone sent me a clip of James Earl Jones probably the most famous stentorian voice in American theater yeah. and film and here's what he said I'm lucky that it comes out enough to talk to you right now. I have no presumptions or no arrogance about my voice. You know, you want to think that I might even be in love with my voice. I'm not because it, it, it would be the most unfaithful uh, lover I, I've ever had because it fails me often. How? Because I'm a stutter, because I not only a stutter, I uh, be, being a stutter for that long in, in my in my developing years. Yeah. I can't have a, an extemporaneous conversation because I cannot be an, an MC, for instance. It's impossible for me. I thought that was so interesting. Because here's a guy, the voice of Darth Vader, yeah, the guy who does Othello, and he's still struggling with it, and he's, yeah, I, needless to say, a few years older than you. And <laughs> I was wondering, but I'm wondering, obviously, part of why he is who he is is not just the gift of his pipes, but yeah. he trained himself. And when you were up there on that stage at the inauguration, you were so powerful, and you punched words in such a deliberate way and you used your hands. I, I mean, I wish this were uh, television so that people could see how you used your hands. That's all a deliberate strategy. And how much of that right. flowed from trying to overcome this challenge that you had? I think a lot of it arose from that. Um, I love that you played that uh, clip of James Earl Jones. I also think of Sidney Poitier, who I remember reading about when I was young and how he would listen to recordings of voices to try to 
improve his accent. That was huge for me hearing about that when I was in fifth grade. I remember Maya Angelou, who was mute for several years after being sexually assaulted and found her voice through poetry. I also think of Martin Luther King, who didn't really get good grades in his speaking class <laughs> in college. And so if you look at orators through times, a lot of the ones that we most celebrate are those who had to really work and develop a relationship with their voice. The strategies that I personally developed that you just mentioned was approaching poetry as a form of speech therapy. So is there a way in which by writing and reciting poetry, I can actually teach myself and my brain and my mouth to recite words in the way that I would like? So one of the ways that I did that was by listening to Hamilton uh, in the song Aaron Burr, Sir, which rhymes Got some R's sound. in there, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's got some R's in there. And it's the R that I struggled with uh, the longest was er. And I would try to rap those lyrics back and imagine that I was on stage with those performers. And by doing that every day, I slowly was able to say er. Um, and so when you see me on stage and see I gesticulate a lot, I think a lot of times people assume that's all sign language. Maybe, you know, one or two or three um, you know, words from American Sign Language emerge in my poetry. But a lot of it is mostly improvised kind of just interpretive movements of my hands. And that arose from ever since I was little, if I was at a store and needed something or having a conversation with a person, I often had to kind of mime out what I was saying because people didn't understand. I remember being 12 and going to a bookstore and asking them if they had a book on poetry. And they didn't know what I was saying. And I had to repeat myself again and mm. again and until I mimed the motion of writing. Did they understand, oh, this is what she's asking for? And so I basically developed strategies and tools and instruments in which I could still participate in my poetry, but find other ways to make sure my meaning was getting across. Did you talk to the president at all about this? You know, he is a, he still, he's, you can see he still struggles with, I think it's one yeah. of the most compelling elements of his biography is that he was really, really debilitated by yeah. stuttering when he was a kid. Did, did you guys have a chance to talk about that? No, we didn't, though. He did call me a few days before the inauguration. Uh, with First Lady Dr. Jill Biden, mm -hmm. who I should say actually owe the majority of my thanks to, not just uh, President Biden, because she was the one. She who spotted was, you. She spotted me exactly. She was the one who was essentially like, I know this poet that I've seen in videos. And I want to see if she can be the inaugural poet. And she had this background in English. And yes. so when I spoke with the first lady and the president over the phone, one, I almost missed their call because I, I didn't recognize the phone number. I was like, I'm not picking up the phone <laughs> because I don't know who this weird person is. I'm about to get on a flight to go to D.C. And I pick it up and he's like, hey, it's Joe. <laughs> I'm like, Joe, who's Joe? Like, I don't know a Joe. <laughs> and I felt so bad afterwards. I was like, wow, I really just ghosted and questioned the president. But the majority of what they had to say to me was just how excited that I was going to be there. They had been one of the few who read my poem before I performed it. And they said they really were looking forward to it being a part of the ceremony. You've talked about, and it's obvious from reading your poetry, that your interest in social justice is interwoven uh, with your art. Yeah. 
I know you started a program for when you were 16, you started a program, uh, a, a literacy program, a, yeah. an English literacy program for kids. And then I also know that you and your uh, sister were rabble rousers in high school Ooh, over this yeah. issue of diversity. You wrote parodies of Disney songs to make the point. <laughs> You've done your research. Who are you? Oh, my goodness. I've got crack people. <laughs> your people are good. So I know. But tell me about that. It obviously yeah. is big for you. Tell me about poetry as a vehicle for that and your interest in social activism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, where do I start? I mean, that's such a juicy question. I <laughs> guess where I'll dive in is from a young age, I think because of the household I was growing up in, because of the value system that my mom was bringing, I was always looking for ways in which I could spot how language functions as a mechanism of, of social change. And that's something that I brought with me. And when I went to college, <laughs> I, I know there were so many of my family and friends who were like, okay, she's going to go study English. Like, that's what she do. And kind you of, didn't. Yeah. I did it. I did not, which, you know, <laughs> hopefully worked out okay for me. Um, I studied sociology because I knew I'm always going to be a writer. I'm always going to be a poet. No one or nothing can take that away from me. But I have to carve out a space for me to be a historian. I have to carve out space for me to ask sociological inquiries. I wonder, by the way, if there are a lot of English students who are now getting graduate degrees in sociology. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. If it, works, we'll see. If it works the other <laughs> way. But anyway, go ahead. So, yeah. And um, I just love looking at those. And I think some of the few examples that I bring up, for example, would be um, the way in which poetry and rhyme and lyricism was used in the Underground Railroad or by slaves to plot their escape. We're not talking about poetry for the sake of being flowery and beautiful. A lot of those Negro spirituals are gorgeous. They are immaculate. But if you look at them structurally, they're coded messages about how to escape. They are missives that can be recited orally to a population that doesn't have access, um, uh, accessibility to books and to reading and literacy. And so all of a sudden, spoken word becomes this enormous weapon. And I think that's just one of the many examples through history in which people looked at sound, rhythm, rhyme, poetry as a real kind of blade to strike back. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. As you know, I worked with President Obama. Mm-hmm. And, casual, um, casual, yep. He yep. was a lovely, he, he was such a wonderful writer. He is such a wonderful writer. Right. But the thing that I enjoyed the most was watching him organize words with a mind toward, this is in prose, not poetry, but there's, of course, poetry in prose as well if if it's done right. But organizing it with a mind toward how words played against each other, the rhythm of the words, the, the sound of the words. Yeah. And that's so, so fundamental to what, what you do. I'm also reminded you wrote somewhere about, I, f- I forget exactly what the quote is, but just how painful writing is. Oh, yeah. Uh, and you always, you know, I always think it's a disaster and so on. <laughs> yeah. And uh, one thing that uh, President Obama told me when I started writing my own memoir is that he said, here's the thing about writing. He said, y- you know, you'll feel like you're pushing this boulder up the hill and you think you've got it and then the boulder will roll down again and yeah. you've got to keep pushing it and, and pushing it forward that, it, you know, meaning it isn't easy. It is, <laughs> no. it isn't easy. I presume that that's still the case. Oh, 100%. 100%. And I think what you just said, that I think that's such an excellent metaphor to sum up the creative process. You really are pushing this thing up a hill and moving backwards a lot of the times. And I think there's this idea that the more famous or landed or you know well-paid you get, the easier the process becomes. And I definitely think resources and power and control can help you have kind of those sources of income, et cetera, et cetera, that help make writing possible. But at the end of the day, it's still you against this vicious white page. It can be (laughs) so hard. And I think unless you try it, I feel I feel yeah. you on this one. I, I'm glad you do. You feel my pain. It's not something that can be taken away by yes. aspirin. And, you know, it's still, I mean, the amount of literal sweat, tears, and blood that I produce when I'm writing. Um, I love this writer named Madeline Miller, and she says that she would go to war against um, her writing idols. She would go to war against previous writing, and it really feels like we're showing up to fight for something you feel is worthy to be written. Uh, one thing that struck me as I was just reading about you is, and even on that day, I mean, you were sort of shot from a cannon. Oh, you yeah. Went, you went from, you know, you were known, you had traveled the world, you yeah. were the Youth Poet Laureate of America, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> which I didn't even know was a thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you but you traveled the world, and you. but this was something of a completely different magnitude. And the poem you read was so so powerful. I, w- I want to ask you about that process yeah. in a second. But I, I wonder, do you find yourself competing against yourself? Mm. I mean, do, you find your, yeah. do you find yourself saying, ooh, is this worthy of what I've done before? Can I do it again? 
150%. I think I'm always comparing myself against what I've done. And I try to live my life where the most recent poem I've written is my favorite poem in the sense that I hope I'm always growing and challenging myself in new ways. Because if I'm doing the same things I was doing three, four years ago, I mean, that's okay. But I don't, I don't see a lot of kind of expansion happening. And so I do try to look at my own body of work and always say, if it's not hurting and challenging when I'm writing something, that means I'm not pushing myself enough. And that's not in a kind of self-sadistic way. It's more so in pushing myself outside of my comfort zone. Writing is an exhilarating thing, but it's not always comfortable when you're yeah. trying something new. I was asking a slightly different thing, which is, but you may have answered it. Uh, you're talking about internally how you judge yourself. Yeah. And I'm asking, do you worry about how others judge your work? Do you worry about others saying, gee, gee, I, she was so great at the inauguration. I was expecting something more. Yeah. Well, I think what this gets to is I honestly think my hardest critic is myself. Before I even worry about what other people are going to think about my I, my writing, I have to respect myself and I have to value that. And that's hard. And so I think my own voice of self-estimation tends to be much larger <laughs> and louder than worrying about what other people might think. But it's that insecurity can definitely be there. Absolutely. I think especially because I entered the American consciousness in such a specific way, um, but happened in six minutes um, at this really important, powerful chapter in our history. And to try to exceed that or surpass that for any audience or any reader of mine, that's a, I think, huge expectation and pressure that I can carry with me. And so I think the way that I remain grounded around those questions and anxieties, like I said, asking myself, is this a poem I would like to read and I would like to have out in the world? And that is honestly what I asked myself with the inaugural poem. When I was writing it, I wasn't even sure if I was still going to recite the poem because we had just had an insurrection at the Capitol steps. And so I told myself, I'm still going to write this poem regardless if one or a million people see this because this needs to be put to paper for me to continue on and have peace in my mind. I want to ask you about that whole process, but just I just want to go back to something for a second. First of all, I should ask you this. Your sister, this isn't where I was going, but oh. <laughs> yeah, welcome to my world. This is how I, <laughs> this is how I roll here. But uh, your sister, she's a twin. Uh, I know you're very close. What does she do? And how does she process the fact that her twin sister is like globally known? Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I, I, I wish I'd invited the whole family <laughs> so that we can have had this conversation as a, a three-person group because I would have, you know, <laughs> I'd like to hear from her mouth. What I will say is when you go up as a twin, that issue of wanting to be seen as your own person as opposed to a unit that's part of someone else, that's something that we've had to work through and process since birth. And so while the inauguration's attention that I bestowed on me was new, that challenge of us being our own person while being sisters has always been there. I think it's made us stronger for it. And so I think the way that she handles it is celebrating me and what I've received while also honoring her own art, which is filmmaking. She loves directing uh, and saying that our paths 
are different, but that doesn't mean we can't walk them together. Yeah. I guess my question is, damn, my twin sister is like famous and wildly oh. successful. Yeah. And I'm trying to get my film funded or I'm trying to get on yeah. this crew and stuff. Is that hard, do you think? Maybe it's not a fair question to ask you. <laughs> yeah. You know, I almost feel incorrect speaking for her. What I can say is I would imagine that it's hard for her and anyone. I have people in my life who are friends and not my twins. And sometimes they'll get a residency or something like that. I'm like, ah, darn, I, I wish I got that. And it's, you know, difficult. But I do think she handles it with grace and kind of the best intention that she can. And my family as a whole beyond her has just been so supportive. And I think what helps in that feeling of, you know, not necessarily comparing and feeling kind of green-faced with envy is my family has seen me from the beginning. They've seen me in the bathroom for hours trying to say my last name. They've seen me for hours going to speech therapy for all of my life. They've seen me when I was uh, five years old. My mom would have to pay me a quarter for every morning I stayed in bed past 6 a.m. rather than writing. And so they've seen the grind. And I think when you witness someone go after what they love, it's hard to feel a kind of toxic uh, negativity towards that. Because that journey is of as course, much of yours because you've been on it. Especially if if you love them. Exactly. So uh, where I was going before I got diverted there was, <laughs> you know, you guys, as I mentioned earlier, you sort of fought for more diversity and more representation of diversity in your curriculum in high school. This is obviously a big issue right now. And I, yeah. I know you're, you, you know, you're a student of what's going on in the world. All of this discussion about curricula and, you know, the sort of backlash to DEI, the, the sort of anti-wokeness stuff and the things that are going on on school boards and everything. And I, I'm wondering whether you have any thoughts about that and does it worry you? Uh, everything worries me. Everything worries me, to be honest. And I think you're hitting a really Important note, which is, I think, the significance of this and as well, the, the backlash that we're seeing against the desire to have literature in a classroom that represents the students that are there. I think there's this idea that um, some, let's say, naysayers against representation in literature have, which is, why would I just read someone because they're Black? Why would I just read someone because they're Latinx? I'm like, no, we should be reading them because they're great, because they're excellent at what they do. And they happen <laughs> to be Black. They happen to be Latinx. But those small measures of difference are keeping a wealth of resources and knowledge outside of classrooms and our students. Um, so I think of it more as an issue of we owe it to children and the school system to give them access to as much knowledge, literacy as we can. And we can't do that if we're only presenting them with an incredibly small and biased, um, unconstructive sample of literary voices. That doesn't get us anywhere. You and your sister were among maybe maybe the only uh, African-American students in your high school. Uh -huh. Was that difficult? Um, <laughs> the, the pause of my voice is, I have, for all of my life, whenever I've been educated, been in institutions that are historically white. And so, yes, it's challenging 
but it's also kind of the waters that I swim in for most of my life, especially as a woman of color striving to be a writer. So in the case of high school, I think it was challenging. I think having my sister there definitely helped me. Um, But when you go from an environment like that to Harvard, which is as historically white as it gets, that same struggle continues on. And I'm sure that will exist for me if I go to grad school or whatever, that I will be walking in buildings and systems and institutions that were built so that someone like me couldn't be there. And of course, I'm very fortunate because my high school, middle school, elementary school um, was New Roads, which was very focused on diversity and social justice issues. But at the end of the day, when you look at kind of the holistic situation of the American educational school system, it heavily others children of colors. Regardless of where you are, I have visited schools that are majority students of color And yet you look at the books that they're reading, you look at who they're studying, and you would never know that the majority of these students are immigrants. Mm -hmm. You never know the majority of these students look differently than the people on their covers. And so I think from the ground up, we have to build institutions for students that reflect all the walks of life that they are. You must be watching this. The Supreme Court's about to rule on a affirmative action case that's going to very much, and Harvard is one of the schools that is involved in that. And there's this conjecture that all of that's going to go away, that affirmative action. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that, just from the perspective of what you just said. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said before, everything worries me, and that's something that does worry me, kind of what precedent the Supreme Court may or may not set with this case. And It's something that has existed, um, I would say, in my consciousness for a while because this trial was going on while I was a student. I've graduated now and been graduated for over a year and a half, and now I'm waiting for this decision. So there are many aspects in which I've spent several years kind of watching this play out. I'm interested to see what happens. I pray and hope that there is a decision that respects the importance of diversity in our institutions. But we'll see. I think we're in a really precarious position. If there's not, and I I want to move on, but if there's not, what would be lost? Everything. In the sense that, uh, I'm trying to even think where to start with this. This is such a deep conversation. I would say, if you look at what student bodies look like, before and after affirmative action, it is really night and day. And like I said, I think there's this idea that because an admission system values difference and diversity, there are students that are getting kind of a free meal ticket into that university. Like it or not, that is happening already with legacies. It's happening already with wealthy students. We see that in so many ways where um, people with privilege are given um let's say, a more open door into that institution. Taking away affirmative action would not equalize that. If anything, it would make more pernicious those levels of disparity. Speaking of Harvard, you were one of the poor students who had to be there during the pandemic. And you finished your career in college during the pandemic. I run this Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, and I felt so badly for the young people who are finishing their college years at home. Yeah. 
And some of your poetry, I just assume that some of these poems were written in your wonderful collection, Call Us What We Carry. Some of them were written during that period of time when when we were going through all of that. Yeah. As a writer, how did that affect you when you were sort of isolated? Yeah, absolutely. It was interesting because while I was writing, I would do a few interviews and things, and people would ask me what writing was like in that period of, I think, kind of the, the worst dip of the pandemic. And a lot of interviewers kind of assumed that, oh, writing must be so easy now because you don't have to go outside. Um, you don't have classes really in the same way and you don't have distractions. I was like, no, if anything, writing is a lot more challenging because I'm bringing a lot more grief and baggage into the writer's room. I'm bringing a lot more urgency and despair and questions. But I also think that's in a way where I got uh, my most meaningful writing because I was in a place that was so dark and I wasn't there alone. I was there collectively with the glow that was mourning all we had lost and all we had let yet to lose. And so, yeah, it was a really, I think, unique place to be writing from. I hope I never have to be writing from such a place ever again and that no one has to. But I think it taught me so much about why I show up to the page. I read somewhere that you said that you thought about Dr. King in jail, writing his letters from the Birmingham jail, that you thought about Mandela on Robin Island, that you thought about others who had been writing in isolation and yeah. under difficult circumstances. Tell me about that. Mm, thank you for bringing that up. And when I mentioned those names, <laughs> it wasn't to compare me to these. No, no, I'm, no, no, I, I never. Uh, I, I didn't interpret that, that way. I don't think that's what you're no, saying. No, I, I think you. I thought you brought it up in the in the in the in the sense that that yeah. offered you inspiration. Exactly. It was so many writers have done this before. If they have, why not me? I should be able to put words in a way that has power and meaning. And I was also thinking, especially around that time of Anne Frank, who was not just writing and isolation, but in terror and fear of a Nazi regime. And she was a young girl. And so I looked at that as, wow, here's this history of people who have been imprisoned and disenfranchised and isolated, who are still writing their truths down. I am someone who is incredibly privileged and has resources, and I'm insulated in my house by choice and to protect myself. I should be able to use those privileges and those blessings to write with, you know, just as much fervor as people have been able to do while they've been chained, while they've been shackled. I'm lucky to be free. So how dare I not write? I read somewhere about something that you recite to yourself before you go out to perform. Yeah. Can you tell me what that is? Absolutely. As I mentioned before, when you recite poetry and you have a speech impediment, it can be quite nerve-wracking. I still get stage fright in that way. And so I worked to kind of develop a mantra that I could recite to myself before performing poetry to make myself feel a little bit more centered. It's actually, funnily enough, based off of the verse in a song in Moana called Song of the Ancestors, which I love. And so I just kind of parsed and changed a few words and rhymes so that it reflected my life. And it goes, I am the daughter of Black writers. We are descended from freedom fighters who broke their chains and changed the world. They call me. And this gives you strength. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. 
We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. You mentioned that Jill Biden saw you. I think she saw you speaking at a Library of Congress thing is what happened. Yes. And she recommended that they try and recruit you for this. (laughs) When you got the original call about this, what did you think? Oh, gosh. I mean, I was in sheer shock, to be honest, because for a few days, I had kind of been hearing from other people that my name was kind of in the ring, that I was long-listed. I was on the short list. I was like, oh, this list is getting shorter and shorter. <laughs> I'm hearing through the grapevine. And at that point, I was just overjoyed to hear my name was even being considered because at that point, the last poet that had read, uh, Richard Blocko, I believe, yes. had been Richard's a twice. Friend, yeah. You must have known him from Harvard, right? I did not from there, but I knew him because I was a poet and, you know, USC Poet Laureate and yeah. he's all over the place and doing amazing stuff. Um, so we went that way and, or at least kind of knew of each other, but I knew I was trying to become an inaugural poet in a tradition where most of them are over 40, let's say. Yes. And <laughs> I yes, was and like, you're 22. Yeah, 22. I was, I think, yeah, 22 at the time or 21, something like that. And I was like, wow, so they have 20 years on me. There's no way I'm going to be selected just because of the demography of what I've seen before. And so when they said I was the poet, I was like, wow, a lot of faith. They're putting it to someone who's out of the hands of everyone before. But I was so excited and overjoyed. I danced around in my socks in my apartment. And it was just like this little amazing, magical secret. And then I was like, great, let's get writing. (laughs) Was there ever a, wait a second, I'm going to be talking in front of a billion people. I'm going to be reciting in front of a billion. Was there any sort of like, man, what have I signed up for? I think the man, what have I signed up for didn't come from that. It came from the Capitol riots because I had made peace with the idea. You know, a lot of people are going to see this. In my head, I was going to be a very, very small, kind of not very notable part of the ceremony. In a typical kind of inaugural. <laughs> exactly. And so I was like, oh, you know, you know, it's going to be a lot of people, but they're going to have the anthem and all these other things. So I'm not going to be carrying a lot of that weight. And then, you know, this horrible, violent thing happened. And I said, oh, my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? I also think the reason, I mean, definitely there were nerves and jitters, but I think the way they were de-escalated for me is because of COVID, because of the riots, that inauguration was incredibly small. I mean, I was looking out at an audience of maybe 100 people six feet apart. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it felt very intimate. It didn't feel like I was performing in front of millions. I could kind of, in my consciousness, tell myself that. But I saw me, a small group of people, 
and a monument. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought about it, you know, yeah. because I remember sitting behind President Obama in 2008 on the platform there. Yeah. And there were 2 million people in front right, of us. Right, right. That oh would have been gosh. a little more intimidating. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure in your experience, there's a lot more noise and things going on. It was quiet. Like I could hear the flags buffeting on the wind. Um, so a very different experience. But you said that when the insurrection happened, uh, you know, it was stunning for all of us and, yeah. you know, deeply, deeply disturbing. And now it was going to be something completely different. The moment was different. So then what are you thinking? I've been thinking, right. Um, I remember seeing what was happening live, I think, as a lot of people did. And I went through so many different stages of grief, of anger and denial and rage as well. And I don't think I moved to acceptance, but I moved to let me accept a role that I might have in this moment, if that makes sense. I'm not going to accept this for my country, but I'm going to accept that there might be a position I can step into and use my voice for the better. And so I wrote the majority of the poem the night of January 6th. I've been working on uh -huh. it for the past few days nonstop. But then that happened and I was like, this has to be part of the heartbeat of this poem. So you finish it rather quickly, mm, yeah. inspired by this awful moment yeah. uh, and called by it. How much did you practice that poem? Not enough. <laughs> No, I would say enough uh, based on what oh, I saw. Oh, thank you, but. thank you. Well, honestly, everything happened so fast. I mean, I was told I was an inaugural poet around January 1st. I write the poem January 6th. I'm on a plane and, you know, maybe a few sets of days or hours heading over. I'm trying to figure out what do I wear and what's the situation going to mean out that there's rights. And so everything was just moving so fast that I almost felt like I couldn't really sit down with the words again until the night before the inauguration. I kind of kicked my mom out of my hotel room, slightly rudely. I was like, I love you, but I have to do this thing tomorrow that's very big. Yeah. <laughs> and I should practice. And so I, um, what I will do is I will try to learn a poem the same way that one might learn a song. So I'll record the very best version of it that I can do. And then I will listen to that on repeat as I'm taking a shower, as I'm eating my breakfast. And then it becomes kind of like lyrics that I can't recite. I mean, you were reading, I presume, or were is this all committed to memory? So you... Oh, no, I was reading on the day that that was not committed to memory. <laughs> was there a teleprompter there? There was not, but they had a podium where I could kind of set my poem down. So that was nice. It was very tall for me because I'm five foot two. Uh, <laughs> so that was a little <laughs> difficult. And both Barack Obama and Joe are taller. You would think they would have thought about that, but... Yeah. Would have thought about that. And their yes. defense that the past presidents they've been working with on that podium have been quite <laughs> yes. more taller than I am. Yes, yes. If you had nothing in front of you, could you have recited that poem anyway? Um, Maybe. I hope I never have to find out. What I will do is plan for the worst scenario. So I had my poems, I think kind of like Robert Frost, when he was reading his novel poems, he had some issues with either kind of- Yeah, he did. Back in 1960, yes. Exactly. Read yeah. a poem that wasn't the inaugural poem. And I think all the inaugural poets that follow after that live with this haunting ghost that we're worried that's going <laughs> to happen to us. And so I think Elizabeth Alexander had a second copy tucked into her shoes just in case. Um, so what I will do is I will play, I will try to recite it, uh, from memory when I, when I practice and I will play very loud discordant music, 
um, so that if I can perform with everything going wrong, hopefully I can still get through. Would not have been as good (laughs) if I'd just been doing it from memory. Um, But I was, you know, hoping that I was ready for whatever happened that day. Having uh, watched the events of January 6th, preparing for a large discordant noises. Yeah, yeah probably was sadly the right thing to do. You said you had to think about what you wanted to wear. I guess you generally wear yellow. Is that the, that's what you, because you know, one of the memories I have, I, I don't know whether it was a gray day or not. It may not have been, but it felt like it was a gray day. And you were like this little bit of technicolor <laughs> in the middle of this very, in my mind, gray day. Now, someone will listen to this podcast and send me the day's forecast and I'll be wrong about that but that's how I remember it. It was gray, I can tell you. Yeah, it was a very overcast sheer day so your memory is spot on. I love yellow. It is one of my favorite colors. Why? It just makes me feel so happy and joyful. Um it just brings you so much happiness. I also wore it as a tribute to Dr. Joe Biden who had been the one um to really put my name forward because the video she'd seen of me at the Library of Congress reading had been me in a, a bright yellow dress and i, I had see. heard that she when she was kind of searching for who i had been she said you have to find the poet who was in yellow reading and so i showed up as the poet in yellow i was only one of that billion whose mouth was agape when you performed and everyone asking like who is that person <laughs> but how was it for you you know, I, I'll tell you, and again, I, I keep making Obama analogies, but he made a speech. You were quite young, but he made a speech in 2004 at the mm-hmm. Democratic Convention in Boston that mm-hmm. changed everything. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, you know, we went to Boston and he was relatively anonymous, a state mm-hmm. senator from Illinois. Yeah. And by the time that 18 minutes was over, he was a national figure. Yeah, yeah. And the same thing happened to you. Oh, gosh. Uh, so... What is it like, especially for one so young? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I'm glad you made the an- Obama analogy because I will never <laughs> make an Obama analogy between me, myself, yeah. and him. And just the experience of that, although I do want to talk yeah, about yeah. your presidential aspirations <laughs> after this, but go Thank ahead. Thank you. It was so, I think, overwhelming. I mean, I was so grateful for the way that people responded to the poem, that it resonated with them. But I had no idea the the ways in which my life would change. Oprah uh, texted me before the inauguration. She was like, by the way, your life is going to change. And I was like, sure, sure. In my head, I was like, maybe two people will like hear this poem and like it and read it someday. Like that was literally the number in my head. I just imagined like one mother randomly in the United States who might have the poem on her fridge or something like that. And so when it ended to kind of step off the podium and realize so much had changed for me. That was a really big shift, especially because it was so unexpected. Um, And I think what I had to get really good at was both valuing that positive, amazing energy I was getting back while also safeguarding my peace and my privacy and my personhood, which I had taken for granted. Um, And thinking about ways in which I had to protect myself because it was amazing. But at the you know end of the day, I come back to Los Angeles after a long flight and I see people kind of pointing at my apartment door. All of a sudden, people are calling my family for quotes, things like that. And you can get really carried away in that hurricane. And so I try to stay grounded by 
saying yes to things like this, which are exciting and I value. I'm so grateful to be here, but also establishing my nose. I can't do everything. I can't be everywhere all the time or else I'm going to burn out. And that's not going to be a great help to me or anyone else. Yeah, yeah. I don't think people think of the downside of the upside. Yeah. Of that kind of instant uh, celebrity. So, yes, you uh, in your poem, you acknowledge what you have said elsewhere. Uh, Descended from slaves and raised by a single mother can dream of becoming president only to find herself reciting for one. Do you still harbor those dreams? I mean, is that something that interests you? Absolutely. And you and I should talk <laughs> again yes. sometime yes. without what's to become more real. I'll cut you the family rate. Oh, that sounds amazing. Thank you. Thank you very much. I <laughs> uh, appreciate that. But yeah, I think it's it's definitely there. I think I'm thinking about it a lot differently than I've ever thought about it. I think before the inauguration happened, um, I was like, don't really know where this poetry thing is going, but you know, maybe I'll just go to grad school, do this, do this traditional route and that way I can have a platform to impact change. And then this huge thing happened where I said, oh, wow, actually my poetry is part of that change that is happening. And I want to include that as much as possible into whatever path I take forward. So definitely on the horizon. And I definitely think if, you know, a far way into politics happens by me, it'll it'd be a path that I have to forge for myself. There are, you know, a lot of people who would say, why? Why would you want to jump in that pool. Some would say cesspool. <laughs> I revere our democracy and and service, but um, people would ask that given the yeah. squalor that we see sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's a really good question in that context, not just why, but why at this time when things seem kind of, I think, so polarizing and at times so poisonous. Um, I think, not to quote myself, but it goes back to what I said in my poem, which is we have to be brave enough not to see light, but to be it. And that's something I demand of my myself. I demand myself not just to write, but to do right as well, which means I have to walk the walk, talk the talk, and my words have to stand for something more than just sounding beautiful or being poetry. I think poetry is the language of the people. And so how could I not be continuously inspired by democracy? How could I not be continuously inspired by this idea of an American project? In any way that I could participate in that, I would be happy and willing to serve. Well, you know, Havel, who's a great poet, uh, went on to become a historic leader. So uh, there are precedents here. Yay. I just want to finish by asking you this. There's a wonderful short poem in your collection called Every Day We Are Learning. And there's a line in it saying, we cannot possess hope without practicing it. What makes you hopeful today? So much, everything. I think as a poet, I try to be as optimistic as possible. And I think, like I said on that line, I think it can be really counterproductive if we kind of sit around waiting for something to arrive on our lap that makes us hopeful. I think in many ways, we have to seek it out, find it nourish it and really discover that optimism and hope for ourselves. And so I'd say something that I seek out that really reflects to me back reasons to be hopeful is the next generation. I think they are amazing. They are active. I mean, every single time I'm in a classroom, every single time I have the good fortune to teach, I'm just blown away 
by the fire, the intelligence, and also the compassion of the next generation, not just for people, but for the planet as well. I think that is so distinct and so unique. And I think society, civilization, the globe as a whole will be better because Gen Z is here. Well, Amanda, you are one of the best reflections of that generation, and you give me hope. So I'm so, so grateful to spend this time with you, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Thanks so much, David. And you give me hope, too. (laughs) Thank you. And so many other people. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.